It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We can win here in South Carolina. I think we're going to do well on Super Tuesday all across this country. People are talking about a revolution. What the country's looking for are results. I insist that there is no such thing as a permanently red state or county or precinct, and I know that you understand that. I talked about broken promises to the African-American community, that there have been too many broken promises and that we must make promises that we keep. We actually have to tell the story of what's happened over the last 400 years. For all the good work that you have done, you are not alone in this fight. It's another big weekend in the Democratic primary race. Post-Nevada, the political narrative was pretty well settled. Bernie Sanders' big win cemented his place as the frontrunner and likely nominee. Biden had long counted on a South Carolina win, but his so-called firewall was looking anything but solid. But in the wake of Nevada, we're seeing something of a Biden bump. Polls taken post-caucuses show Biden opening a wide lead over Sanders of anywhere from 7 to 20 points. So what's going on here? Joining me to talk about this here in D.C. is Darren Sands, political reporter at BuzzFeed News. Hey. Hi, Amy. Claire Malone, senior politics reporter for 538, is in our studio in New York City. Hi, Claire. Hi. And in South Carolina, the state with all the action this weekend, Meg Kennard, politics reporter covering 2020 for the Associated Press. Hi, Meg. Hello. Good to be with you. I want to start with you, Meg, because you're sitting down there in South Carolina, polls have shown in recent days Biden seeming to open up a pretty big lead here. Uh, The other day, the state's uh, leading African-American politician, Congressman Clyburn, endorsed Biden. We always knew this was Biden's race to lose, but is your sense, being there on the ground, that the former vice president could have a really big win here on Saturday? He's certainly hoping so. That could be what really kind of boosts his flagging campaign here going into Super Tuesday. But it does see from the surveys that we've seen, there has been a bit of a widening in terms of Joe Biden's lead over the other candidates. What we've also been seeing, as often happens, is the number of undecided voters going down. Hmm. Obviously, I'm no pollster, I'm no statistician, but to see that number go down and to see Joe Biden's number go up could be an indication that some of those folks who were kind of just waiting to get to know some of the rest of the field to try to figure out for whom they're going to vote on Saturday, that they're seeing Joe Biden picking up these big endorsements. He just announced another one from the mayor of Charleston, South Carolina, which is one of our biggest cities here. So it could be that some of those last minute kind of end of the primary season endorsements, we never really know how much those matter. But at least when we're seeing those come out this week, a lot of that support does seem to be going toward Joe Biden. Darren, you've also spent some time in South Carolina. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about maybe who those undecided voters were or how you think either the debate that we had this week, maybe the results from Nevada have impacted the way that voters there are thinking about how they, you know, how they vote once they go in. Right. Yeah, they've been thinking about this for a really long time. And one of the frustrations that voters had Um, in places like more rural places like Orangeburg or places outside of Columbia or outside of Charleston was the sheer number of candidates who were actually in the race. And it was confusing for people. It's difficult for people to process all that information about these candidates and trying to make a decision. Most people who are voters take a very serious approach to 
trying to figure out what these folks believe and what the issues are that they care about. And they try to really make an educated decision. And I think that it was just a lot for people to process. And one of the things that's happening now, like Meg mentioned, is just that there is an added sense of, okay, okay, this is happening on Saturday and that decisions are going to have to be made. And I think that is one of the things that has benefited Biden is this idea that he's been a safe bet um, for so long. And he's spoken about this a lot, especially this week, um, that he really needs them um, to come through for him if he's going to win this thing. And so I think they have a real sense that um, even if they were looking elsewhere, which they were, and there are county officials who are supporting folks like Pete Buttigieg and there are folks who are, you know, obviously Tom Steyer is, you know, someone who's gaining in popularity. And so I think coming home to Joe um, is one of the things that's going to be a really interesting indication going into Super Tuesday, especially because um, if they propel him to something that he's able to do great on Super Tuesday, which is what the Biden campaign's really been waiting for this whole time to get to Tuesday. Right. Um, that, you know, it's, it's going to be a great story, uh, very similar to how 2008 was for them. Claire, can, I want to pick up from Darren's point about whether this, a big win here for Biden, could propel him forward into Super Tuesday. Um, we know that uh, momentum is really a good thing for candidates, but there are only three days between the vote in South Carolina and when these 14 states um, start you know, when the polls open and they start voting. Um, is that enough time for Biden to overcome some serious obstacles in his way, specifically that, you know, he just hasn't spent much money here as campaign in those states? And Michael Bloomberg has. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I'm thinking of it kind of as, you know, South Carolina is a state that Joe Biden spent a ton of time in. Mm. Um, I mean, you talk to their campaign all the way back in the summer and they'd say, you know, his strengths really start with South Carolina. And then he's going to pick up a ton of um, particularly black votes in the South in these March Super Tuesday states um, because there are a couple of of big voting days in March. You know, I don't really know. I mean, I think he's obviously they have to be happy about the fact that he's bumped up in his poll numbers since Nevada. Um, But on the other hand, the diversity of states on Super Tuesday um, isn't necessarily a great thing for Biden. I think, as you said, you know, voters do like momentum. (laughs) Um, And Sanders certainly has quite a bit of it. Bloomberg comes in as sort of a sticky wicket for Biden kind of uh, fuzzing up the moderate field um, or the moderate lane. And so I think, you know, some of the results on South Carolina will be... um, will set the stage for Tuesday for Biden and, and you know, what's his margin of victory if we're all um, sort of assuming that he will likely win. If it's a really slim margin, um, I think some people might say, yikes, uh, other people are nipping at his heels um, and, and maybe voters on Super Tuesday who haven't had as much exposure to Biden on the state level, on the more retail politics level, like the way South Carolina voters have, will say, Eh, I don't know. Joe Biden was a little anemic in the past Mm. couple of months. And perhaps um, I want to look elsewhere. Well, and if you go to the 538 um, (laughs) website, you will notice if you look, scroll through all of the polling uh, pages there, you'll see that there's only one candidate who is hitting the so-called threshold, right? At least 15 percent of the statewide vote in all of those Super Tuesday states. And that's Bernie Sanders. So it it seems to me that even a good 
solid win for Joe Biden out of South Carolina may not be enough to overcome the kind of lead that Bernie Sanders already has. Yeah, I mean, 2016 on the Republican primary side, I think taught party elites a bit of a lesson, which is um, voters like a winner, right? And, and, and American parties, whether for good or for bad, have set up their primaries so that it's not all everyone votes on one day and it's all over with. It's, you know, one state votes after another, votes after another. And that's just, you know, the psychology of someone winning um, really does play into the way um, voters feel about, you know, casting their ballots. So and I think, you know, we should we should put in here. There is certainly kind of this, you know, late surge by establishment people saying, yikes, Bernie Sanders. You know, we're seeing those typical articles in The Times where, you know, it's it cites a bunch of other politicians who aren't in the race who bigwigs in the party would perhaps like to see if this all comes down to a contested convention. So, Well, that's what I'm wondering, too. Is yeah. this sort of like in New Hampshire in 2008 when Hillary Clinton was sort of written off uh, right after Iowa? It was like, OK, well, here comes Barack Obama with that big win. Looks like he's going to be the nominee. And New Hampshire said, well, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. I don't know that we want to see that. Meg, I, I want to talk uh, about something that may happen in South Carolina this weekend. There's something of an effort going on, not so totally underground by Republicans, to vote in the Democratic primary, mm-hmm. uh, potentially picking Bernie Sanders as their candidate to uh, you know, make this process even messier. And a lot of Republicans see Bernie Sanders as a more beatable candidate for Donald mm-hmm. Trump in the fall. Is there any evidence that something like this is is really going to happen? That's one of the really fun things about covering politics in South Carolina, the (laughs) fact that we have this open primary system where just about anybody can vote in any primary. The Republicans this year having opted not to hold a primary and instead throw their support behind President Donald Trump from the get-go, that really does leave a lot of Republican voters here with the option, should they so choose, in voting in that Saturday primary for the Democrats. There is an effort afoot to encourage those Republicans to go and support Bernie Sanders, Theoretically, because he is seen within GOP circles as more beatable on behalf of President Donald Trump, it's yet to be seen as to how much of that effort is really going to show up at the polls. There have been TV interviews recently with some Republican voters throughout the state who say that they have already early voted and that they have opted to vote for Bernie Sanders. I think that it's just we're really going to have to wait and see until we get some of the data coming in to see if that really were successful. I mean, you can't you can't look at any one poll and think, okay, this is an exact reflection Mm. of the votes that we're going to see coming in. We certainly know from cycles past that that is not a really good way to approach this. But if we do take some of that data that we already have into consideration and then think about, OK, well, if, if we do see a massive groundswell somehow of support for Bernie Sanders, you know, in the next 24 hours, then perhaps we could attribute some of it to that effort. But, you know, this is it's something that's happening concentrated out of one portion of the state, a very conservative portion in a traditionally Republican area. Mm-hmm. It's also an effort that state party officials have said, we do not support this. And a lot of longtime Republicans have told me there's no way that I would ever vote in a Democratic primary, even if it were purportedly to help the Republican candidate that I that I support. So it, I really can't say if this is going to have a major impact on Saturday, but it's one of those fun little things that we get to see happen in these states where it's kind of just a free-for-all in terms of the primary process. Darren, um, I want to talk about somebody else that hasn't, got a whole, hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention, 
um, in part because, well, he hasn't won any delegates yet, and that's Tom Steyer. But if you look at polling in the state of South Carolina, even recent polling, he's up there in the within the top three and could come out of the state with some delegates. So how is and why is this happening? Um, I think he's a candidate who's um, taken a lot of interest in, in black issues. He's someone who's come on the scene in the last few years as a major um, proponent of the impeachment. Um, coming out of California, he's someone who was rumored to have you know, run for, for Senate. He was someone who's been obviously an environmentalist who has engaged lots of young people. The sort of the lifeblood of his political organization is in very, very young staffers who are pretty sharp and pretty... Um, they know what they want out of out of this game. Um, and so for Steyer, it's been about talking a lot about justice, talking a lot about this being the work of his life, feeling at feeling as though he's at a moment in his life where he wants to right um, some of the wrongs that have sort of marked American society for, you know, and not for the better. And so he's out there really talking a lot about really kind of almost sticking it to the Democratic Party in a way. Um, obviously, the party does not want to be engaging in sort of these long conversations about reparations, but it's something that um, Steyer, to his credit, if you like those kind of politics, has really kind of established himself as a uh, contrarian and someone who's willing to um, take a chance on the kind of politics okay. that is going to gain support. So he spent about $20 million in the state, is my understanding. And it's just something that people will, you know, make good on, um, especially if the results are good. Uh, I'm sure that there's, you know, there's a lot of incentive there. Right. Well, M- Meg, um, is your sense that uh, that those voters who today are saying, or at least in polling recently are saying, that they're going to support Steyer will stick with him? We saw it. In uh, Nevada, for example, that Steyer was polling pretty well, and then ultimately he ended up not doing particularly well there. That's a very good point, but I think that something that's also important to remember is, you know, we often hear Nevada and South Carolina kind of lumped together in the more diverse states among these four, first four early voting contests. Nevada is different in its diversity from South mm-hmm. Carolina, and here. Tom Steyer, as as Darren just mentioned, has been focusing extremely heavily on black communities. I've covered him dozens of times. Every single stop, he makes a point to talk about reparations. There are not a lot of candidates out there who will do that. He talks about HBCU funding. That has been a conversation among some of the other candidates, but Tom Steyer seems to hit on it a little bit harder. He has really not just invested monetarily, but also in terms of his time and the building up of his network here that's been growing for several months. He has really been focusing in primarily, almost singularly, on the African-American community. And again, no idea exactly how that translates into his numbers on Saturday, but since that is the quote-unquote diversity of South Carolina here in our black voting community, and that's exactly where he's been focused on, it does seem to indicate that that would be something that he would see translated into his numbers on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And Claire, let's um, talk about some of the other candidates, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg. Um, 
they are not expected to do particularly well in South Carolina. The polling suggests they're sort of stuck in the single digits. But there was news today that a super PAC supporting Elizabeth Warren is going up with advertising of $9 million investing in places like Texas and her home state of Massachusetts and California. What do you think those three candidates can do in Super Tuesday? And do they make things more complicated for those quote-unquote establishment figures who want to see the party unite behind one non-Bernie candidate? Yeah, I mean, next week, I think this time next week, we'll, we'll be in a, maybe a different headspace about the race because I do think post-Super Tuesday, there might be a couple candidates that do drop out. Mm. Um, you know, Warren is a really interesting case. At one point, we should remember in the late, so- late summer, early fall, she was kind of what we called a... F- 538, like a co-front runner with Biden. And so her, you know, she had a steady rise in the polls and sort of a precipitous fall. And it's really been interesting to watch her kind of try to claw her way back in the past couple of weeks. And one of the things she said is, I'm actually a unity candidate for the Democratic Party. Um, If Bernie freaks you out for being too far left, if Joe Biden worries you for being kind of a eh, campaigner, um, I'm your girl. Um, So I think But I think it's a risky proposition because Elizabeth Warren doesn't have great favorabilities with non-Democrats. And um, I think, you know, for a party that's kind of obsessed with, quote unquote, electability in this primary, thinking about what those um, swing voters and swing states, largely white men, um, who they might vote for in the general election. I think a lot of Democratic primary voters have a difficult time picturing that person will be Elizabeth Warren. So Super Tuesday is kind of her last I think, really big stand on this. And I think, you know, Buttigieg and Klobuchar are sort of, um, you know, they're candidates that have, frankly, staked a lot of their appeal on being kind of these moderate Midwesterners, perhaps appealing to, again, those white people in those swing states. A state like South Carolina, I mean, obviously, Pete Buttigieg has gotten a lot of press for having um, sort of zilch as far as black support goes in the state. Um, so I think that they are they are not really looking for a they're not really expecting anything on on Saturday. But Tuesday will be a, a, a big kind of moment for our, for those three campaigns to kind of um, right. to, to fight it out. And I think Warren has um, the most to gain and the most to lose um, because of her her status in the race at one point in time. Claire, thanks so much. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks to Darren Sands, political reporter for BuzzFeed News, Claire Malone, the senior politics writer for 538, and Meg Kennard, reporter for AP covering 2020 from South Carolina. Thanks, all of you, for joining me. Thanks, thanks Amy. Amy. As we've been discussing, Super Tuesday is just around the corner. Texas is one of those states voting on March 3rd. The Lone Star State will select 228 delegates, the second largest that day behind California. And thanks to early voting in the state, more than 425,000 Democratic ballots have already been cast. Recent polling finds Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Michael Bloomberg, and Elizabeth Warren all bunched up on top. I wanted to hear how Texans are processing the Democratic primary, so I spoke with Abby Livingston, the D.C. bureau chief of the Texas Tribune, and a Fort Worth native. She joined me from Dallas. It just feels strange. I mean, first of all, Texas rarely has a competitive presidential primary. It's usually decided by the time we get to Texas. Or it's pretty clear where things are headed, and Texas sort of falls in line with the trajectory. But 
it just feels very, very strange. And it's just like everywhere else. You've got the very, very passionate Bernie Sanders supporters. And then you have a splintered, fractured, I would say majority that isn't landing on a single candidate. I would probably guess Joe Biden uh, has a lot of support, but I hear all over the place um, Mayor Pete supporters, uh, a lot of women, prominent women in the state are lining up behind Elizabeth Warren, and it's just very unpredictable. Texas also has an early vote, like some of the other states voting on Super Tuesday. Do you know how that's going and how many votes have actually been cast already? We monitor that on our website, and it's an absolutely fascinating. We update it every day, and I think we've got about, at this point, we, what we monitor is the top 20 counties in population. I believe that's the number, but it's the biggest counties. And in that sphere, it's about five to 600,000 votes. I can't remember the exact number, um, have cast their ballots, and it looks like it's a little bit above 2012 levels, but below 2016. We have tried to glean things from the early vote in past cycles, and it has been a little bit misleading. And so I would say there's interest, but it's it's not quite on the scale of, say, 2008 when Hillary and Obama came into the state. I, I would say the electricity is quite not in the air there uh, compared to back then. But where, where I think a lot of the focus is is some of the down-ballot candidates. And there are so many open races and competitive races that that's probably where I would say a lot of the more of the energy is focused. The other focus is on the Latino community since Bernie Sanders did so well in Nevada among Latino voters. What's your sense in and around communities of color, specifically Latino communities, if there's that same energy for Bernie Sanders? Or is it maybe more muted or they're looking at other candidates? What do you think? I can mostly speak to anecdotal experience. And I think what we're seeing in Texas is very similar to what's going on nationally, which is we're seeing a generational divide. The Latino community and the Hispanic vote in Texas is very unpredictable. It is that community has not come out in proportion to their population numbers. Um, and so it's it's very unpredictable. But there is youth energy. Um, but what what I found fascinating, I did an interview on Monday with Congressman Mark Vesey of Fort Worth, and he represents a highly organized section of Fort Worth. It is some of the most reliable Democratic voters in the entire state, and it's an African-American community. And VC is a very calm, uh, team player type member Democrat, and he was apoplectic about the Bernie vote, and he described going to church on Sunday at an African-American church and people who I assume are older voters being just throwing their arms up about the prospect of a Bernie Sanders nomination. And I would deduce that those voters are behind Joe Biden. So you can feel it in the air that there is just a divide and it pretty much goes along all racial lines. Well, I mean, you wrote about that this week, that in talking to a, a number of Democrats in the state, there is a great worry that the gains that they that Democrats made in the state in 2018 especially in and around the suburbs of Houston and Dallas. There are competitive races in and around Austin and the suburbs there that having Bernie Sanders on the top of the ticket is going to doom their chances of holding onto those seats and potentially doom their chances, too, of picking up legislative seats. What did you learn? So one of the things I've been tracking all cycle is while nationally everyone wants to talk about Texas in play at the presidential or Senate level, in the state, 
What these folks really care about is the state House of Representatives. They're nine seats away. They've been on a march ever since Donald Trump's been on the ballot toward picking up seats. And that for people outside of Texas, why it matters is it's redistricting. They can redraw those lines in our congressional delegation. And so that has been the focus, and that is what in-state Democrats care about more than anything else. And they've been winning for the first time in 30 years. And so these are these the people I interviewed are office holders, politicians, donors, and they have been so beaten down cycle after cycle. They'll get their hopes up. In 2008, they they made a huge advance, and then they lost it all in 2010. There was the Wendy Davis gubernatorial race in 2014. And they're winning, and it's becoming consistent, and they're winning in Republican territory because they have to. That's how those maps were drawn. And they do not want to litigate a fight about socialism. And so they're enormously frustrated. They, they've been in the trenches. They've been building toward the future. And they see these outsiders coming in and trying, telling them how they're doing it wrong. Now, the flip side is supporters of Bernie Sanders are saying you have been doing it wrong. This is not an era where you can win over moderate voters or Republicans. You need to bring in someone like Bernie Sanders, who is so inspiring. He will bring in a whole new population of young voters who uh, want to embrace getting in the game. And so it's really hard to tell who is right in this argument. I obviously will learn both on primary day and on the general election. And everyone's like, where's the data on this? And right now, it's just a very theoretical argument. Mm-hmm. Well, one data point could be, Abby, that you had Beto O'Rourke in 2018. Now, he did not run as a moderate, he ran pretty much as a progressive liberal and was able to come close statewide, right, within three points. So why would the data suggest that having someone who defines themselves outside of the sort of moderate label would be a problem in Texas? He actually did have some trouble early on with the unions, and that was pointed out to me. It took a while for him to grow on them. And I think so much of this is reflective of our era. O'Rourke, for one, he he wasn't quick to draw lines on policy of what he would support. Sometimes it was frustrating as a reporter to try to nail him down on these things. But he, his tone was welcoming. And as one, one source said, remember, Beto listens. And so he was much more of a listener as a politician than telling you what you should follow. And it really was an electric moment in Texas politics where you had white, wealthy women door knocking alongside um, across town from, you know, young Hispanics. And it really what I I remember or this past week, I spent some time in a campaign office and I saw all these constituencies who all kind of were talking about how 2018 sort of reminiscing about it. And they were they were all sectors of the Democratic Party. And you could feel the tension in the room. There was definitely Bernie supporters. And then there were people who were with other people. And so with O'Rourke's presidential campaign implosion, I think we've forgotten that he was a pretty gifted politician in that Senate race, and he was able to make a lot of people feel welcome under his tent. How are Republicans viewing the possibility of Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket? A year ago, the nightmare scenario for Republicans was a Beto Biden ticket. The way it was explained to me was the Bernie Sanders proposition is just it solves a whole lot of problems for them this cycle. It could totally motivate their base. I've never heard the word socialist said so much when I'm out and about around going around Texas. But what I would also say is there were a lot of Democrats talking that way four years ago about Donald Trump. So, you know, to both parties, getting too aspirational in the other side's primary could be a little bit dangerous territory. Abby Livingston is D.C. Bureau Chief of the Texas Tribune. 
Over the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing a lot about Russian interference in the 2020 election. The House Intelligence Committee was briefed recently, as was the Sanders campaign, about meddling. But details about what exactly this interference entails haven't been made public. Ellen Nakashima is a national security reporter for The Washington Post. I sat down with her to find out exactly what we know and what we don't. It's not clear that the nature of the help was um, made you know, explicit during any of the briefings. And the Sanders campaign also did not want to uh, disclose that, though in a statement to the Post, the, the campaign suggested that Russia was uh, intervening through social media and that they had seen in the past Russian efforts to um, sow discord uh, on social media by by spinning up uh, you know, sentiment um, and, and, and making these uh, sort of trolls putting out comments on the campaign that might anger sort of like, for instance, the unions in, in Nevada. This, of course, came out just before the Nevada caucuses. Right. Because there has been a lot of vitriol online from Bernie Sanders supporters, not just this year, but in the last election yes. as well. And so the Sanders campaign is saying, look, a lot of those, uh, those aren't our supporters who are saying these terrible right. things about people. Those are Russian these, bots. These may well be Russian trolls, Russian bots. Right. right. Not real. But do we have evidence that they are? Well, so some of the uh, experts and academics who track this sort of interference online have said they haven't seen any real organized effort by Russian bots online and you know to do this sort of thing and Facebook itself too said they hadn't seen any of this so it's it's unclear on the other hand this would be very much in keeping mm -hmm. with Russia's playbook their goal is to stoke division and discord and just make things look messy what good does it do to sow discord in the American electorate? Well, at least two things. One is it makes American democracy just look messy and unappealing and, and to the wider world and to, to Russians and the Russians' countries near abroad. That's part of Russia's goal is just to see, say, you see that vaunted democracy, it's just not that shiny city on the hill. You know, it's not as great as it's all cracked up to be. And the second thing is it just sort of weakens the eventual nominee, the Democratic nominee who comes out of the process to oppose Trump in the general election. Can you tell us a little bit about this uh, move to replace the now, I guess, the second director of national intelligence with Richard Grinnell and what that could mean as we go really now, we're really heading into election season, what that could mean for the kinds of information that members of Congress and the president are going to get about election interference. Okay, so first of all, Grinnell is acting, he's temporary. He said he doesn't want the job permanently. If the White House doesn't put forward a nominee by March 11th, Grinnell's uh, job disappears. He has to go back to Berlin where he's the ambassador the, because there's a, by law, a 210-day period in which an acting official can serve. And we're closing in fast on that 210-day window. Uh, but now if the president nominates someone, which Grinnell says he's looking to do soon, 
and we hear some names out there, then uh, Grinnell can stay in as long as that nomination is pending. And then once there's a new confirmed nominee, that person takes over, serves out the rest of the, you know, the term. Nonetheless, the concerns that people have about Grinnell is that he is such a fiercely partisan loyalist of Donald Trump and has proven himself to be um, in, in his position as ambassador that they fear this will uh, worsen the politicization of intelligence, which, which they've already feared has started to take place. And when you have a situation like that in the intelligence community, which prides itself on not letting politics influence its judgments, its assessments, the information it provides to policymakers, when you have that, it, it really uh, is concerning and has you know, concerned and dismayed a lot of people, especially um, recent former national security officials, who fear that people inside the intelligence community slightly, you know, aren't as candid as they could be or should be with their information or their assessments for fear of getting crosswise with the president. How confident should we feel as Americans that the federal government is doing all it can to ensure that the Russians or any other foreign government is not interfering, messing around in any way in this election? Despite the political headwinds, there are appointed people who, at the various agencies around the government, and I include in that the NSA, National Security Agency, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, DOD, uh, and ODNI, who are in their own lanes or mission areas doing their best to ensure that the election comes off without uh, interference. DHS is proud of the work it's done working with the states and local uh, governments to 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 shore up their cybersecurity f- uh, for, for their computer systems and their voter registration systems. A lot of work has been done since 2016 on that, and they've made lots of great strides. There's still work to be done, but, but they're, you know, just light years ahead of where they were in 2016. Right. Uh, the FBI is, is working more and more with the social media companies to ensure that they sort of share information about threats they're hearing and are hoping to, you know, prevent uh, a repeat again of 2020. Again, these agencies are in their own lanes trying to do their thing. Cyber Command, which is uh, part of DOD, but aligned with the National Security Agency, undertook an uh, sort of a disruptive effort in 2018 in the midterms right. to prevent the Russian trolls, the internet research um, agency, from disrupting the midterms. So they're, you know, on guard for any other uh, potential operations by the Russians again this year. Ellen Nakashima, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me about this. Thank you. Ellen Nakashima is national security reporter for The Washington Post. The other big news this week has been the spread of the coronavirus and its impact on the global economy. Markets around the world have plunged, including here in the U.S. Hi, this is Jesse from Morristown, New Jersey, and holy crap has it hit us. We are real middle class people and have just a little bit of stock as a cushion, and we've lost $18,000 this week. 
Heather Timmons is the D.C. economics editor for Reuters. I asked her what's causing investors to worry. The markets move like like a herd of sheep. You know, they are they are driven a little bit by fear is that investors are telling us they're concerned that the U.S. isn't 100 percent prepared for the coronavirus and, and may not have put the right preparations in place over the past few weeks to stop people from coming in. You know, we've been testing people. We've been stopping people from coming in from China. We haven't necessarily been testing people coming from China to somewhere else, to the U.S. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear out there right now. Um, one interesting thing that we're seeing is that Wall Street has become this strange clearinghouse for information about the coronavirus. And there's analysts putting out, you know, reams of information and, you know, going through WHO reports. And, uh, of course, they're not scientists and they don't necessarily um, – you know, know necessarily how to interpret all this stuff, but the market is just dying for information to trade on. And so this is the situation we're in right now. And, and we saw President Trump this week come out uh, after the markets had closed and, and try to calm everything down. And then the markets fall again. So it speaks a little bit to, I think, investors' concerns about how the U.S. government is handling this situation. Well, it, it seems at least up until this point, when big things have happened, like we've had a government shutdown and impeachment, things that would, quote, rattle the markets just haven't. But this virus has done that. Is it because of the fear that this president and the country may not be prepared? Or is it because an economy like ours that's really driven by consumer spending, you know, a virus becomes a much bigger deal because people don't leave their houses. They don't go to dinner or buy cars or go to sporting events. Yeah, we are we are sort of unique in um, large developed economies that about two thirds of our GDP comes from consumer spending, and uh, we saw someone from Moody's Analytics come out and say this week consumer spending is is basically the firewall between a recession in America and economic growth. Um, so if we do come to a point where People are concerned and maybe people are so concerned and maybe they don't trust the information that they're getting that they decide to do things like take their kids out of school or stop going to restaurants or not go to a mall or, uh, you know, not use some of those goods and services that keep our economy running, then that's going to be disastrous. Um, so that's a that's a really very a unique problem for the United States. What's different between, say, what this president has done on coronavirus and and, and again, in, in, in assuring not just Americans, but the but the market with presidents who've had other health crises, whether it was SARS or Ebola or other things and how they have responded. This presidency is so uniquely market focused that we saw uh, presidential advisor Larry Kudlow come out earlier this week and say, essentially, we've got this problem all locked up. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. Because he did that at around the same time that the Centers for Disease Control and Protection came out and said more cases in the United States are inevitable, it, the, the sort of mixed messages, I, I think, did more to, to spook investors and everyone else than, than anything else. I, I think we sort of reached the, the limits with the market. You know, as you said, the market has 
not fallen on things like impeachment. It didn't really fall on much on things like the U.S.-China trade deal, which was very unsatisfactory in, in many ways and fell short of the goals. But but right now we're seeing it drop, uh, I think, and the investors are telling us that because they're not they're not believing this message necessarily that's coming right from the White House. How will we know when the average consumer will start to feel as pessimistic as the market seems to be? Mm, I think we'll see consumer spending data go down and that's going to be, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a little while before we see those numbers. There might be monthly, monthly retail sales figures and things like that, that people will be keeping an eye on. Um, You know, I, I would start looking maybe for some anecdotal stuff about foot traffic and malls and, whether or not people are canceling, are going to concerts and buying concert tickets, sporting events. You know, there's big question marks over all of these things. Well, and you brought up this point earlier, but the fact that the president not only contradicted some of the people from the health community who were on stage with him, but that in instead of tapping, say, the head of the uh, HHS or maybe somebody else who comes from the health world, he tapped his vice president to be the the lead on this. And why do you think he did that? What message do you think he was trying to send? Again, for a president who's very concerned about the state of the economy and the markets going into a presidential election. You know, the White House has said to us and to others, it's this sort of one voice from government approach is what they're trying to get. So Mike Pence is, is maybe supposed to serve as a clearinghouse for information to go through. Uh, he's probably the person that you know, the public-facing person that Trump trusts the most to do this kind of thing. He's a strange choice because of the issues that happened when he was governor of Indiana, when there was what some critics said was a preventable HIV outbreak. And, you know, Pence changed some policies after that happened, but he was widely criticized for that. So he doesn't have a great track record, really, of uh, taking care of the health of citizens. And again, for folks thinking about its impact on a presidential election, a presidential election where the president is going to talk a lot about how great the economy is, how do you sort of process that at this moment? I think the, the you know, the economy has sort of been has been so helpful to Trump. It has it has overall, you know, although there's pockets of things that are bad and inequality and, you know, the, the tax cuts seem to have funneled money to wealthier people, the U.S. economy overall has done fairly well, even as the trade wars hurt other economies worse than it did ours. Um, so if we do get to a point where everything slows down to, as as the Moody's analytics uh, economist said, you know, to a recession in the next six months, uh, that's going to be very difficult. Well, Heather Timmons, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, helping us understand this a little bit better. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Heather Timmons is DC economics editor at Reuters. And we asked you, are you concerned the coronavirus will affect your personal financial situation? Or has it already done so? Kenneth Jones. I'm calling from Wilson, North Carolina. My 401k has been hit a little bit, but it should bounce back after everything is over. Hello, my name is Maria. I pulled out of the market the day before Christmas. And while I was a little disappointed to miss out on some of the market highs that took place right after that, 
Right now, I'm really happy I pulled out of the stock market. That's all for us today. If you missed anything or want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or literally anywhere that deals in podcasts. And hey, while you're there, check out How to Vote in America. It's a new podcast from WNYC Studios, The Takeaway Gang, and yours truly, exploring how our election system works, or doesn't. Every episode is 10 minutes or less, fast and furious, and full of information that'll make you smarter. Go subscribe and leave a rating, too. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send me a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. See you next week.